Uh, this morning's scripture reading is found in Paul's letter to the Colossians. You can find this on page 844. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in the chair pockets, again, that's Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Amen. Sundays. Sundays are mandatory. So says Colossians 5, verse 1. So turn there, if you would, and read with me. Here's what Paul says. Uh, it is my command in all the churches to gather each week on the Lord's day to hear the word preached, to sing, and to fellowship with one another. Colossians 5.1. Some of you are giving me funny looks about that. I don't understand why. It may be you couldn't find that verse. That's because it doesn't exist. There is no Colossians 5.1. Nor, nor is there a verse in the Bible that says going to church on Sunday is mandatory. That it's non-optional. And yet Christians everywhere are looking for such a verse because just so everything's clear, so we're all on the same page, God, what do you think about Sundays and our attendance of them? Because there are critics of Sunday who say, you know, I have my own spirituality, my own private spirituality, me me and Jesus, we got our own thing going, it's wonderful, on the beach, in my home, on walks, and some of us have sympathetic reasons for, for taking that line of thought. Maybe you're in a, in a church who, instead of comforting you during a tough time, they judged you. They marginalized and excluded you. Or may, maybe a leader in a church or a pastor was, was just unnecessarily harsh in something that he said to you. Or maybe you grew up in a Sunday family that went to church every Sunday, yet it was full of hypocrisy. You dressed up, they went to church, and yet there was hypocrisy in the family. There was unfaithfulness in the family. There there was a lack of Christ-likeness in the family. And so you said, I'll I'll just do this on my own with Jesus. So it would be nice if God just came out and said, look, tell me, is Sunday not mandatory? Or Sundays, you got to be there. And yet, do we really want this? We say it would be nice to have this, but do we really want Do we really want another rule? Here's another thing to tack on to trusting in Jesus to make totally 100% sure that we're right with God. Right? Because the Bible tells us it's just trusting our lives to Jesus is the only requirement for knowing God for everybody. But, but you're really right with God if you go to church every Sunday, if you attend all the meetings, those sorts of things. Now, to be clear, God loves when we gather together as his people on a Sunday morning. 
He wants us to love it too. Okay, but God starts from a different place. He doesn't start with a, a rule. God motivates us by his grace. He begins by reminding us of the privilege of who we are, deep down at our core, who we are because of Jesus Christ. That's where he begins. Then he goes on to talk about what is fitting as a chosen family member of the Father. And only then, after that, does God address all those things we do together on Sunday mornings. So God begins with our identity, who we are deep down, and then he works his way outward. And that's how he works in our lives in general, isn't it? He starts with the heart, he works outward. But certainly true about our convictions of getting together on Sundays together around Jesus to worship him. He starts in and he works outward. So we will move with the Apostle Paul similarly by first looking at the motivation for getting together. Secondly, what we can only display together. And then third, what we actually do when we get together. All right, so first, if you want to follow along the bulletin, you got some notes there in the back. You can write notes there. Number one, the motivation for getting together. It's, only, it's mentioned so briefly, this motivation, that would be very easy for us to miss, even as we read. The church in Colossae met in the home of a man named Philemon. And so as Paul writes this passage, I like to think he's, he's envisioning the church about to gather together. They're walking up to Philemon's house, to his doors. And, and who are these people that Paul is envisioning, that, that these people who have trusted Jesus? Paul identifies them as you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What, what a great picture, right? If this is true of every church member at their core, it's worth then taking some time to really examine Paul's identification of who we are if we trust Jesus. If you are God's chosen one, to what is he choosing you? Like To what is he choosing you? Or, or for what is he choosing you? He has adopted you. He has adopted you as his child, as his son or as his daughter into his family. He's chosen you for his family. That's what he has chosen you to and for. The, the Greek, the, the word that gets to the root, the context here of holy, as it's used here, means set apart. So it's as if God is looking at this lineup of foster kids. All right, and, and he sets you, he sees you, and he sets you apart. And says, I want you, I want you to be part of my family. And he chooses you not because you're holy, not because you are lovable. He chooses you, and then in choosing you, he sets you apart and puts his love on you. It's not because there's something in us that makes us lovable. He chooses to set us apart, to put upon us his love. See? It's all grace. It's all mercy. Here's some scriptures that, that talk about this reality of being part of God's family. Jesus says himself in John 1, 12, or actually John says this, sorry. Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul puts it a different way in Galatians 4. And he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Stop right there. That just means people who were trying to earn God's favor, make themselves right with God just by trying really, really, really hard. And they just found that they couldn't because of the sin in their life. And so God came to, to rescue them from that. 
And so it says here that, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, a spirit that cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What does it mean if we're chosen out of this lineup graciously? What does it mean for how we relate to God's family? The night I was engaged to Katie, uh, we walked back from this, this majestic meadow, all right, this, this, this place overlooking the foothills of, of North Carolina, this beautiful setting. We walked back from this majestic meadow to her mother's house, all right? So from one setting, not, I don't know why you're laughing, I, I don't, uh, to her mom's house, to another setting. I'm just distinguishing that for you, just so you can follow the story. So... There's a, there's a lot of happiness and joy, and as the night goes on, you know, some preliminary plans are discussed, because Katie thankfully said yes. Katie's mom, who I just want to point out again, a wonderful woman. Have I not said that yet? I need to say it. Wonderful woman. But she communicates to me two things, two things that would stick out to me for kind of a long time. The first is, remember, the night we got engaged, number one she always envisioned Katie living on the same street as her. So she just drops that little nugget on me. Because, you know, that's, that's normal. That's normal. Number two, in the meantime, I really suggest you invest in a calling card because she and I are going to talk on the phone every day. So two little wonderful truths that have come into my life. How do you think that made me feel? I think that made me feel. Even though I'd just taken the first step of uniting myself with Katie, become part of her family, in that moment I had a couple concerns. Um, mostly when, how much, if I should show up to family gatherings. Uh, is this what's going to happen? Like, uh, is this going to be this sort of, I'm going to be, <laughs> like every time I get there, I'm going to get a pitch for why I should buy property on the same street as them. Is that what's going to go on? You know, I, I just, I had some doubts. Now, should I show up? And of course I did, and I should. Because it's the family of the person to whom we've chosen to commit our life to, right? Of course. There might be concerns, but am I really going to avoid family gatherings? No, of course not. So here's Jesus. He's chosen you. He, he set you apart. He, he died so that you could live forever. So what are you going to do about his family? Because they say some weird things sometimes, as family. It feels like they overlook you. They, they occasionally make you feel uncomfortable. And definitely more than like any coworker I have or anything like that. Like God, it's, it's the people at church. I get that you have your concerns. But it's the family of the Savior to whom you've committed your life. So are you really going to avoid family gatherings? No. No, of course not. No, I've been chosen. I've been set apart. I'm beloved. So I come. So, so let's get together every week as a family and, and celebrate our chosenness together. That's the motivation for getting together. Paul now then moves into what we can only display together. Read with me verses 12 through 14. Put on then, as God chosen one, holy and beloved, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul says to put on what's appropriate for who you are. So we know who we are, right? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So now put on what's appropriate for who you are. If I'm a basketball player, I put on a basketball jersey. I don't put on this item of clothing for myself, right? I put it on to clearly display to others, I'm on your team, right? I'm on your team. I'm here to, I'm with you. I'm going to rebound for you. I'm going to defend for you. I'm going to pass for you. And I'm certainly going to shoot for you because that's what I do as a basketball player. That's the kind of player I am, sorry. But, but I'm with you, all right? If, if I'm a groom, if I'm a groom, I put on a tuxedo. No one puts on a tuxedo to feel better about themselves, all right? No, no those things are so uncomfortable. No one does that. Those buttons are so hard to put on. They're so small. Who made up that idea? I don't even know. But, but no one puts it on because it feels good, but to communicate to the guests, to the wedding party, to your bride, I'm here to get married to this person, to join her team. So if I'm God's chosen one, holy and beloved. I put on what's appropriate for who I am. I put on compassion. I dress myself with kindness, with meekness, with humility. And above all these things, I put on love, which really makes the outfit, right? I don't put these items on to make myself feel good, to make myself feel better about myself or morally superior to others. Kind of a pat on the back. I put on these things for others. They're always ours for others. To let others know that I'm on their team. I'm with you. I'm for you. By displaying to them my uniform. This is my uniform as someone chosen in Christ Jesus. For most of us, Sundays represent our only family gathering of the week. It's our only opportunity to experience compassion in the form of someone looking out for you. Experience humility and meekness from people you look up to but are humble and bring themselves down and, and love you and serve you. And, and, and for some of us, the only chance to experience real love, to experience a warm handshake and embrace, that means it, it turns out that it's, we should dress appropriately for church, right? We should wear our Sunday best, but just a little differently from how we've always culturally thought of that. So we Put on what's appropriate for who we are. Compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, love. And you might object, well, wait a minute, right? These are things we can do Monday through Friday as well. These are things we should put on all the time. And you'd be mostly right, but not entirely. Look with me in verse 13. Forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So it's Jesus alone who can empower true forever forgiveness. Because we know from experience every act of forgiveness towards a wrong requires sacrifice, right? We, we sacrifice our rights when we forgive. We sacrifice our reputation sometimes when we forgive. We, we sacrifice sometimes repayment when we forgive. We, we sacrifice putting that wrong in our back pocket so we can use it for later against the person when we forgive. We sacrifice that, don't we? Our Lord alone forgives with an inexhaustible sacrifice. It's inexhaustible. What do I mean by inexhaustible sacrifice? You should, 
or you do or you should, be aware that hurricane season is upon us, which means getting prepared. We have a hazard management specialist actually with us this morning sitting nearby. I don't know, is there a website to go to for that? Kmanprepared.ky, there's a little plug for a hurricane state. You get everything when you come to church this morning, right? Thanks, Simon. I put you on the spot. I, but as you prepare for a hurricane season, you sacrifice a little bit now, don't you, for that? You buy things. For example, Katie has, has bought a bunch of bottles of water, put in our freezer, right? It, it, it's about three to four days worth. Probably, probably not enough. Many of you guys have bought more, but imagine if someone sacrificed their time, their money, their labor, really part of their life to build a well here in Cayman, which, by the way, is physically impossible, right? We have 50 feet of rock below us. It's, it's not, there's nothing to really drain up. But a well represents an inexhaustible resource of, of thirst-quenching water, right? That's what we have in Jesus Christ, an inexhaustible resource of grace, During the week, people may pass around, you know, a 16-ounce bottle of grace to you. They may give you a little bit, right? A little taste, a little kindness. Once you take it, there's probably no more of that coming to your way, right? That's it for most of us. Once it's up, it's up. But the cross of Jesus Christ, it is our well. We we gather around Him. And so we gather around Him, our, our well of life, and, and, and forgiveness, only Christ then can demand that we also forgive. For everyone else, forgiveness is a choice. Take it or leave it. Give you 16 ounces of it. That's it. But not for the Christian. A Christian claims Christ's inexhaustible sacrifice. It's, it's the well from which we get water. We keep going back to that well to forgive and to love and to be kind. And so church is the only people among whom Forgiveness is non-negotiable. And that is really good news. It means every time you come on Sundays, you get together with these people, you know you're going to hear about forgiveness. You know you're going to hear about grace. And then you're going to experience it. Because it's non-negotiable for those of us who call Jesus Lord. He is the well that keeps giving grace to us. And so he alone can say, you got to give grace. You're not going to find that elsewhere Monday through Friday. You can't display to one another non-negotiable grace in your yoga class. Right? You, can't, you can't get it at a work outing, at a club or at a pub. We display it to one another when we get together on Sundays. So we've talked about what's our motivation for getting together, what, what can we only display together. Now thirdly, finally, Paul moves us to what we actually do when we get together. From 10 to 11.30, what is it that we actually do. There seems to be, he's talking about about four activities. I don't want to say four things. It's four movements that you see happening, or we should see happening on a Sunday morning. The first of which is bring people closer together. Bring people closer together. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now let me talk about three key words here. Peace, rule, in our hearts. And then we're going to kind of tie it together, okay? So stick with me here. We sometimes think of peace as being this feeling we get when all the circumstances go our way. But the peace Jesus purchased for us was, was bringing together rebels and God the Father. P- people full of sin, people who had no, said no to God and yes to ourselves, and bring them back together with their Creator. 
That's the peace that Jesus has brokered. So when Paul talks about this, Paul himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he said this should, should rule in your hearts. What did he mean by hearts? He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had a Hebrew understanding of the heart. The heart isn't just the place of feelings and emotions and things we see in Hallmark cards. It is the control center of a human being. Thinking, feeling, emotion, ultimately what we do. The will. And finally, Paul talks about then, okay, let peace rule that heart. What does he mean by rule here? It's a unique word in the New Testament. Brabeo is the word. And it means to umpire. It was referred to someone who umpired or refereed athletic events, the athletic games in Greco-Roman world. It was the person who blew the whistle, who told everyone the rules, who determined the outcome. Someone who was a judge of games. So if we take these words together, Paul is telling us, when we walk in on Sundays, our decisions decisions we make, should be umpired by what will bring people closer together. Decisions we make should be umpired by what will bring people closer together. And I think about all the decisions that are made for Sunday morning, and even in my own heart, I think about, yeah, but what would I prefer? What song would I like? Sometimes, in my own heart of hearts, I, I, I don't think about, okay, what will bring people closer together? And that should be the umpire of everything I do on a Sunday morning and everything we do as participants and members of God's family. That's the first activity. Decisions we make. What's going to bring people closer together? To one another and to God. Second activity, let God's word move inside us. Let God's word move inside us. Look at verse 16, the beginning there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. God's word when presented, as Jenny read it, when preached, as I'm doing right now, it's meant to dwell inside of us. And when we hear that, my, my fear is we think of dwell as modern people, people who view home as simply a place of rest, whereas a Hebrew understanding of home would have also seen it as a place of work. People worked in the home all day. There wasn't a sofa in a Hebrew home. There wasn't a chase lounge in the home. You only rolled out your mat at nighttime for everybody to sleep on. You just rolled it out. Let's go to bed. Work is finally done. We ate. We're going to bed. And that's how we're supposed to view this work. Even the Greek word, it's meant to convey this dynamic activity, this God's word dwelling or inhabiting us. It's dynamic. It's going to work in us. There's a student of Katie's. Katie's an art teacher, and one of her students is... um, someone whom our, our family has befriended. Uh, he's attended church with us uh, for a little while, pretty regularly. He's a wonderful kid, just a really great kid. He's got a great heart, great heart, and, and, but he's uber-hyper, uber-hyper. He, he can't sit still. He's all up in your business all the time, it feels like. He's like checking where my clothes are made from. I'm like, ah. And, and, and so it's a Sunday after church, and I'm, I'm, when I'm at my most kind of weary, to be honest with you guys, and we have a house full of children on this day, six at this time, and um, Katie's got, finally some of these kids working on an art project together, except, of course, for this young man who, who, who can't really sit still. So this kid, he, he, he's turning, he's in our living room, turning over everything, examining everything in our living room, and, and so he told you to pick up the remote. Hey, Mr. O, do you know this remote was made in Korea? No. 
No, I didn't know that. Uh, Mr. O, do you know there are 38 books on this bookshelf? No? No? That's uh, good to know. Um, and finally, Mr. O, did you know that two spiders live behind this bookshelf? Like, I actually, that's, no, I didn't. There's some wisdom there that's pretty useful. Thank you. And yet there I remained, fixed on the sofa, perfectly comfortable with my superficial view of the world and my chips and salsa. Right, just sitting. Just sitting. I think the young boy can teach us something about how we receive God's word. It's meant to dynamically dwell in us. It's meant to, to move around in us. We, we should be talking about it later with each other, in the lobby or at, or at a lunch. Like In all wisdom, we should be turning it over, examining God's word from all angles. How does this affect my thinking? How does this affect my worldview? How does this affect me as a, as a father, as a husband, as a neighbor, as a coworker, or as a follower of Jesus? Right? And, and looking, using God's word, it, it, or the other alternative is we just sit back, take it all in, and say, what did the preacher tell us to do again? What did he say? So this morning, if you're, if you're standing on yourself later, what did, what did Brian tell us to do? Oh, yeah, go to church on Sundays. No, you've mi- you missed it. You missed it. You can do that and get on with it, but you can also let God's word dwell in you richly. Not, not impoverishedly, not poorly, richly, dynamically, not just superficially, right? So, second activity, let God's word move in you. Third activity, sing words. We get to sing words that teach, challenge, and express gratitude. Look at the rest of verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart towards God. God. Now, a lot of commentators debate this teaching and admonishing. Does it belong to how we're supposed to teach God's Word, or does it belong to how we're supposed to sing? Right? The first part of the second part of this verse, now after careful study, I believe Paul is primarily thinking about the Word of God. The Word of God is meant to teach us and challenge us. which means to, to admonish us, to, to challenge us. But even as he's writing about the teaching and challenging function of God's Word, I think Paul's line of thinking goes from singing. Oh, yeah. Singing does the same thing. Singing can teach and challenge us, even as we're thankful in our hearts to God. Right? And so singing has that function. And so he mentions psalms here. Psalms are the direct words from God, direct words of praise to God about God. It's praise language from the Scriptures. And so because God's Word forms us, it challenges us, it molds us, it shapes us, doesn't it? And we sing it. And then there are things called hymns. And hymns are basically songs that teach us as we sing. Which is brilliant because it's much easier to, to remember a line from a song than it is a line from my monologue today. And so you sing it. It's wonderful. That, that's why hymns have lasted through the ages. Not because people wanted to keep organs around, like piano organs and things like that, for a long time. But because they teach us timeless truths about God and retell the story about Jesus, retell the gospel about Jesus Christ. That's what hymns are so good at. And then there are spiritual songs, which seem to be these spontaneous songs given by the Holy Spirit as God's people gather. So you have these things. And in some ways, we have all, all of these categories of songs represented this morning through our, through our praise team, which I'm so grateful. For example, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. We sang that earlier, and it comes from, not from a psalm, but from Isaiah 6. We're singing God's word back to him. Okay, we have hymns 
on their way. Hymns with a twist. Amazing Grace is coming up. A, a hymn that teaches us about God's undeserved favor towards us now and forever, reminding us that we haven't done anything to deserve God's love, but he's just been gracious towards us. And then as the, the writer of this new hymn with a twist, he overflows in this Holy Spirit, okay, my chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior, he's rescued me. So it's a, a hymn with a twist. We're going to get another hymn with a twist in a song called Cornerstone, very similar. Old song with a new sort of Holy Spirit, put this on my heart. I'm going to express this too. Now, many of us get our worship songs via YouTube, via Big Fish Radio, via social media recommendations, and then we kind of form a little bit of a playlist, right, in whatever shape or form that is, which is wonderful. But I would encourage us to think a little more biblically, just a little more biblically about this, how we, how we assemble that playlist, not to eliminate some of the more poetically dressed songs that talk about our feelings and emotions, that's great. But to consider adding songs that are directly from God's Word. Adding songs that that teach us and challenge us even as we sing them. Because that's what's going to really shape us. So, third activity, sing God's, or we, we sing words that teach, challenge, and express gratitude when we get together. The fourth activity we do when we get together do your part for Jesus. Look at verse 17. One of my favorites. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so how do we apply this to Sunday morning? We'll consider what people do on Sunday mornings to contribute. They, they contribute usually through one of two categories, right? Word or deed, as Paul puts it. Some people do their part by, by teaching adults or teaching children on a Sunday, Right? Some encourage a four-year-old who's experiencing his first time back there in, in, in children's church. He misses his mom. And so someone's encouraging him with words. Wonderful. Some people sing. Some people greet you at the door. Some people say hello to you when they sit next to you and then, and then engage with you in conversation after the service. They use their words to serve, whether in word or deed, because others do their part for Jesus in deeds. They cut out pictures they prepare games. They bring snacks for the elementary age class that meets in the studio. Others put out books, prepare coffee, snacks. Some wiggle knobs up on a soundboard. Really important. Some pass out a Bible or give up a seat for their mom so she can sit a little closer to, to the edges, be closer to her child who's in the back. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of your Lord Jesus. He has chosen you. And we're meant to, to dress appropriately when we gather together. So we open this morning by looking for a Bible verse, right? That's what's said once and for all, God, our Sunday's mandatory. We didn't find one. But I think we might be overlooking, if that's ever entered your mind, what's most obvious here. Did you catch it? That we're reading a letter to the church gathered at Colossae. And if we turn back a page or a couple pages, we'd see a letter that gets addressed to the church of Philippi. And if we went forward a couple pages, we would read a letter to the church that gets together at Thessalonica. In other words, Paul is writing these churches because he assumes that they're meeting together. In fact, he says in Colossians 4, he, he commands them to read this letter the next time they get together. 
What's the point of doing that? What's the point of getting together like this every week? Not just turning on TBN or listening to the radio, getting a podcast, or worshiping Jesus on your own way on the beach. What's the point of doing this every week? It's that through the preaching of God's word, through the songs that we sing, and through each person's contribution to be reminded of how truly you are, how truly loved you are because of Jesus, and to get further clothed with his love. That we'd walk away more assured of his love, and then we'd look a little bit more like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. This, this segment, this slice of about 90 minutes or so, Lord, that where we get together, hear from your word. Let your word go to work on our hearts. We get together and we sing words back to you, sing words that are, are your words, sing words that teach us about you, sing words that are just this, these gracious Holy Spirit-led words of gratitude and thanksgiving back to you. And we thank you that you call each of us to do our part. And you don't just sit there and say, you got to do this, you got to come in. You start by saying, you are chosen. You are wholly set apart. You are beloved by me. So let's get to, together Put on the clothing that's appropriate and celebrate our chosenness together. May we be people, God, who choose to get together more than we choose other things on Sunday mornings. In Jesus' name, amen.